Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education, presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Episode 7, Your Subject in the Curriculum, with Emma and Tom. Welcome back everyone, this is Emma and Tom Talk Teaching. We're going to be wildly indulgent during this episode, aren't we Tom? Yes, we've locked ourselves in our office, there is no guest, nobody has walked past to be kidnapped and dragged in front of a mic, so it's just you and me today. It is, and um, we've decided that we are going to take a subject angle for this episode, but we're doing that in order to maybe support other colleagues out there who are starting to think critically and deeply about their subject and their curriculum for that particular subject and we're going to model a way in which you might be able to use literature to support that process of considering your subject curriculum and also how you can apply some different techniques to think critically collaboratively about why you teach what you teach and it's got kind of a a slightly wider ramification really uh, at this particular moment in time hasn't it Tom? Yes I mean it's always good to think about why you teach what you teach and why your subject is what it is but over here in Wales we've got the new curriculum coming in we've got education reform it means to some extent that all bets are off in terms of what the thing's going to look like. For people outside, the the concept of subsidiarity calls upon every school to interpret the curriculum framework appropriately for its own local context. It calls for powerful connections to be made between different subject disciplines, which has, it, to some extent has become a little bit of a rabbit hole, I think, for secondary, who've got terribly excited about it all, and potentially a little bit dangerous for primary, who, who if they don't think about it enough, have tended to think, well, we work with themes a lot, so where's the problem? And and yet we, we sort of know from working on this that if you don't have your subject discipline sorted out, that's going to be a little bit messy. But on a really basic pragmatic level, named subjects, while they're named, no longer have any particular guarantees about the the relative importance they're going to have, the time and space they're going to have in order to be represented on the curriculum. Now, of course, from your point of view, that's nothing new, is it? Absolutely not. So we have never been a national curriculum subject. Drama in the UK has never been a national curriculum subject. So to be named within the expressive arts area of learning and experience and have a place at the table um, is actually new for us. But it's not new to have to come up with our own curriculum because, you know, whilst you're not on the national curriculum, that's what you've got to do. Whereas music has always been named. And I suppose, yeah, we've had to have a few arguments about our place at the table, but that's tended to be slightly lower stakes in a way. We're arguing over do we get, you know, one or two hours a fortnight or three hours a fortnight? Are we going to get loads of money for (laughs) instruments this year? That kind of thing. All of a sudden, you know, we could potentially find that, that... the small numbers that take our subject and the the great expense of providing all the equipment could be counting against us. Other subjects, you know, even what used to be core subjects, we've heard recently that there's not going to be single sciences at GCSE. They're talking about a combined double award only. English language, English literature being combined into a single GCSE. All of a sudden, as I said before, you know, all bets are off about our place at the table. And so it does seem important that we really get to the root of what our subject is for, why it exists, what we should be doing with it. 
and to be able to have some quite detailed arguments and justifications for that. So what we've done today is we've both turned up to our office carrying a subject-specific piece of writing, uh, not something really obscure, but something quite accessible, which opens up some tricky cans of worms and some difficult arguments over what our subject is for. So we're not quite sure where this is going to go, but I'm just going to invite you, Emma, to kick us off by telling us a little bit about the source that you've brought today. Well, if I was um, a student doing my assignment, I'd probably get brownie points for choosing something that is incredibly recent. This is uh, a book that was published this year, 2021, um, from a series, a UCL press series called Knowledge and the Curriculum. And this text is called What Should Schools Teach? Disciplines, Subjects and the Pursuit of Truth. And this is the second edition, which now includes chapters. So basically what it does, it's kind of sets out its stall, its kind of philosophy about about why this series has been published but then it has individual chapters looking at or addressing that question what should schools teach from a subject perspective so this new edition includes woohoo drama and yay music (laughs) so um, I obviously was very keen to have a look at the chapter written by Martin Robinson who is author of Trivium 21C or 21st Century. So check out any of his books. He's also got a very good blog as well. But he's a long-standing advocate for drama and a teacher of drama for many years. Um, So he's written the chapter on uh, what schools should teach from a drama perspective. But I'm just going to read you a tiny bit from the back of the book just to give you a sense of some interesting questions that you might want to ask yourselves as well around curriculum design. So it says, The design of school curriculums involves deep thought about the nature of knowledge and its value to learners and society. It is a serious responsibility that raises a number of questions. What is knowledge for? What knowledge is important for children to learn? How do we decide what knowledge matters in each school subject? And how far should the knowledge we teach in school be related to academic disciplinary knowledge? These and many other questions are taken up in What Should Schools Teach? So with that in mind, Martin Robinson sets out his story. He does a little bit of sort of the history of drama education, which is a really interesting one, but I'm not going to go into too much depth and detail about that. But I will just say that a big kind of headline that sums up the maybe different perspectives that emerged throughout the 20th century about drama education culminating in the kind of start of the 21st century was whether drama education should be an education about the art form, so education about drama and theatre as an art form, or a more holistic developmental learning outcome, which is education through drama. So the kind of learning benefits that are transferable and that are a bit more holistic that can uh, really sort of permeate all aspects of of a learner's development that drama has to offer. Now, I would say I'm going to set out my philosophy right from the off that I believe and I feel that my philosophy is that a drama curriculum can and should do both but I think Martin Robinson comes down quite firmly although there are instances where you know there are exceptions to the rule but he he sets out his stall from the off and quite firmly says that he feels that drama's value as a subject is when it is treated as an art form when it's treated as theatre and he says this from the off he says 
it's most valuable when drama is seen as an art form that examines what it is to be human in all its variety, politically, socially, philosophically, physically and poetically. He says when drama as a subject is of least value is when it is seen as a social and political exercise in which the teacher has already made up his or her mind as to what the outcome um, should be for each child, whether through bourgeois or child-centred socialisation or revolutionary political indoctrination. And he, he says that the focus really should be on live theatre. So the arts of acting, directing, dramaturgy, designing, writing, devising, critiquing and responding. So this is a, a real emphasis on the theory and practice. And he says that those are kind of two main areas of ordering a curriculum for drama a real emphasis on the kind of art form of drama and um, I mean it's interesting isn't it sorry to yes right <laughs> leap in at that point I mean thinking it. about the learning through drama I mean I remember going to inset sessions in school about the way that drama can be used as a kind of tool to learn all sorts of things I suppose uh, you'd not saying that everybody's got this sort of really extreme end but there is an extreme end of learning through drama I suppose where drama kind of stops being a, a discipline in itself and just becomes a kind of a strategy yeah. for teaching stuff and I mean that way lies I would have thought danger perhaps yeah absolutely <laughs> so drama pedagogies have got a history of applications in, in multiple disciplines and contexts indeed there are lots of undergraduate and postgraduate drama degrees that examine applications of drama from everything to sort of reminiscence theatre techniques that are used in care homes to uh, looking at the use of drama in prison settings so yeah, the danger, you're absolutely right there, Tom, is that if viewed only as a kind of toolkit of, of really interesting pedagogical approaches, then the danger is it's not seen as a substantial subject in its own right with kind of facets of the discipline that, uh, you know, and, and a whole kind of body of knowledge, experience, concepts that are, are worthy of curriculum time and uh, GCSEs and A-levels and qualifications and all of those things. So Martin Robinson makes a, a case that really does sound very compelling to me because I do believe that the art form itself is something that all learners should have the opportunity to examine to manipulate to understand its inner workings and to benefit from the what I perceive to be both artistic sort of implications for their learning and, and outcomes but also their social developmental more holistic benefits you know and, and an example of that is you know through studying a play text or going to see a piece of life live theatre you are as Robinson says you're to understanding a bit more about what it is to be human and human stories and different ways of representing those stories who gets to tell the story whose stories do we leave out which perspective isn't included so there's you know a whole wealth of learning opportunities when you consider drama curriculum from the perspective of or drama education from the perspective of the art form what is interesting and maybe gave me pause for thought about Robinson's chapter and his perspective on drama in education is a stance that sees the pupils and sort of positions the, the pupils as actors and theatre makers 
and that's it. I mean, he doesn't explicitly come out and say that, but when he explores the sort of aspects of his pedagogies, pedagogical approaches, and also aspects of curriculum content, it seems that a lot of the the work that he does with learners kind of positions them as actors who are thinking really carefully about their work and how it translates to an audience. So the all-important kind of finished product of a kind of theatrical output, so a show, a performance, it seems to be at the forefront of Robinson's perspective on the subject. Now, what I think that may be neglects that is a big part of my philosophy is that there are a lot of learning benefits to experiencing those drama pedagogies and exploring themes and topics, I say with trepidation, because this can cut a lot of flack if we think about, you know, thematic approaches to curriculum design that don't necessarily have to result in a final finished performance. A lot of research and development work in the world of of theatre making actually doesn't necessarily instantly culminate in a live performance. And I'm thinking back to my heyday when I was teaching drama. There was a, a unit on the edXL GCSE drama specification, which was called Drama Exploration. And that's purely what it was. And yes, you may not see some of those techniques if you were to go into the professional world of the actor's studio. And, you know, the likes of, as uh, as Robinson um, says, still images to explore um, a, per- a character situation or Conscience Alley, which is where a pupil might walk down the middle of, of a corridor of two rows of people who are kind of speaking the thoughts aloud of that character in order to get a better understanding. You might go into a professional Royal Shakespeare Company rehearsal and you might not see any of those techniques being used, but those are distinctive drama pedagogies that were created and developed by some really top bods and experts in the field and pioneers of of drama education that I think still have a very valid place in a pupil's education and learning experience and don't necessarily mean that they're not learning about drama as an art form. So I would make a case as many other drama experts and experts of drama education have have put forward that drama as a subject can also offer a learning through route but doesn't necessarily have to be jettisoned away from um, learning about the art form itself. So, yeah, that was where his his argument fell down a little bit for me. I certainly think you would have to look a little bit more widely than being a an actor or or a, you know a creator of of you know drama experiences. Thinking about some of those things you said a minute ago about you know exploring what it is to be human and looking at which characters' stories are told and which are not. You know, there's big questions aren't there about how the power dynamics of society are are reproduced in the classroom through the choices of texts and and the way things are done which you would have to transcend the role of an actor I think and become something more of a a critic or a, a philosopher and that sort of thing during your drama in order to really fully consider and access those really big and really difficult questions. Yeah and I suppose to be fair to to Robinson he does talk about that he does talk about developing pupils as dramaturgs researchers and performers and that that emphasis should come through in curriculum design and obviously pedagogical 
approaches. But he does say some things that I think maybe show his hand a little bit about the more progressive views about drama and its educational benefits. So he's when he's talking about the benefits of group work that are sort of intrinsic to the art form. So, you know, when you're working in a group to create a piece, he says of things like teamwork and trust in group work scenarios, he says, this is not character education. This is an intrinsic part of the form. So he's kind of, the fact that he has to say that, you know, we're not just um, developing their ability to work as a team just 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 cause we're doing it because that's what theatre makers have to do um so even that he's justifying it in relation to the art form itself and I can understand why he's doing this and he sets out his stall quite clearly he talks about this this move this change in emphasis around about sort of 2016 and a sort of aligning with um Michael Gove when he was education secretary which was a bit earlier actually but this kind of move towards a knowledge rich curriculum whereby exam boards started to do things like identify sort of set texts that students needed to encounter an emphasis that students should be learning full texts by the end of their GCSE and AS and A level qualifications and also an erosion of the sorts of units that I mentioned before these explorative units so that exploration of drama where there was no emphasis on a finished product as it were the erosion of, of those learning opportunities in the GCSE and AS and A level qualifications now that can roll downhill to key stage three and it certainly used to for me when when I didn't have a key stage three curriculum to fall back on a national curriculum I would look to the GCSE and ASNA level qualifications their specifications and I would try to make sure that my key stage three pupils had those kind of foundational skills knowledge experience concepts that would help them to access GCSE study so th- there is a bit of a an invitation there to colleagues out there for a start starting point obviously go to look at some literature like like I've just done and kick it about a bit and think about whether you agree with it but then maybe also have a look at the GCSE AS and A level specifications with a critical eye and ask you know do you agree with what's there and and what implications could that have for key stage three and I suppose there's not really any right answers with this balance that you have to strike within your own particular department, you know, the way that you're going to deliver your subject discipline. But I, I guess the, the moral of this is that you need to have a coherent justified argument and you know we wouldn't want to give away too much about our our application and interview process but it's quite fun isn't it because we do set up a bit of a conversation about this with our candidates and we ask them about the nature of drama and you know they don't entirely know that it's coming I suppose they know slightly that it's coming but some of the preparatory stuff that we send through but it is notable that it is very easy to tie yourself up in knots and find yourself in positions which can be a bit difficult to defend if you just come out with some glib catch-all statement about the nature of drama and haven't really thought thought the implications of it through. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it got me thinking about this idea as well that um, Fiona Heath-Diffie talked about way back when we started our podcast about physical literacy and a move from physical education to a focus on physical literacy, which opens up the opportunities in the subject for all people, pupils, and then in their eventual kind of lives as adults to 
find something, some form of physical literacy that is going to be carried through, you know, and and they'll benefit from for their whole lives. And it got me a little bit worried that if the subject sort of couches itself in a way that is speaking specifically to the artists among pupils, so the future actors of this world or the future directors, and it's trying to grow those pupils to think like an actor, think like a director, which in some parts of my own thinking... I've thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. In some ways, that might be disenfranchising or or marginalising those who don't see um, themselves in that way at all and don't see a future for themselves in that way at all. You know, are are we preventing them maybe from having an appreciation of the art form later on in their lives and benefiting from it from a way that is not necessarily in a traditional theatre space? Well, this is interesting, isn't it? This is why these conversations have to come from a very specific subject point of view, because as you rightly say, you know, the PE world has been battling almost from the opposite direction towards the centre in a way, you know, Fiona has been dealing with departments which historically have catered very much to their elite sports people and basically traumatised large numbers of pupils, you know, at worst, into having a really unhealthy relationship with physical exercise, you know, in their bodies and things like that. You know, that's an extreme point of view, but we know that that has gone on historically, you know, in the last 20 or 30 years. Whereas I suppose drama departments historically might be fighting against a tendency to have backed themselves into a corner of just being seen as a pedagogical toolkit and having not enough of that practitioner aspect to it. So this is why, you know, these subject conversations come from a very specific place, don't they, depending on which subject you're in? They really do. And, you know, I think this is a nice point to to make a segue, I think, to the world of music, where I know that elitism is something that's kind of dogged... Uh, dogged your your uh, fellow music teachers throughout the years and it's something that you you quite rightly get applicants to the PGC music program to grapple with by way of a very short extract that we give them a, a interview so what have you brought to the table Tom and, and what does it what kind of <laughs> dissonant or what kind of uh, critical conflict does it create around uh, perceptions of music well the the title of the chapter is the justification for music in the curriculum which uh, actually is very similar to the title of the Elizabeth Bate article that we looked at didn't we um, mm. last year the subtitle is far more eye-catching than that music can be bad for you (laughs) and it's a a book chapter by chris philpott in debates in music teaching now debates in music teaching is great because it, it does exactly what it says on the tin really it does what we're trying to do in this podcast episode as well gives you some really pokey arguments to start off some very interesting conversations and what chris philpott is doing in chapter four is he is making the point that music also, maybe to a lesser extent than drama, maybe because we have been a named subject in the past, but to some extent feels or has felt historically that it's always needed to justify its place, justify the number of hours, you know, often because music is very, very resource heavy, very expensive and tends to get very small numbers through the door has tended to need to justify justify itself on that basis as well. And he makes an argument that we have tended to over-egg what he calls the soft 
soft justifications for music. In other words, the idea that music is good for you. The idea that music is, you know, is good for the pupils to do music. And he makes an argument very early on that that is quite dangerous. He says these justifications are predicated on the assumption that at worst, music is seen as servicing other areas of human understanding and at best as a necessary counterpoint to a harder and more rational world. He talks about emotional justifications in which music making is seen as a a means of developing emotional intelligence. Civilizing justification in which it makes for a better and more rounded human being. Therapeutic justifications, and I mean, we hear a lot of those for drama as well, don't we? Yeah, um, yeah. Particularly at interview. I mean, again, you know, not wanting to give too much away, but we do tend to get a bit twitchy when we get candidates for the drama programmes who want to be every child's kind of personal therapist rather yes. than their drama teacher. And uh, instrumental justifications, you know, this idea that it reaches parts of the pupils that others can't reach, you know, ma- developing their mathematical skills the Mozart effect. I mean, Louise busted that one spectacularly the other day, didn't she? She did. <laughs> I've got to say, as you're reading these things, I, I'm seeing a link straight away to what Robinson was saying about drama as subject is least valuable when it's a social or political exercise where the teacher has already made up their mind about what the outcome is. So I'm thinking about what um, he, he's talking about there with, with um, civilising uh, effects. Like that. I'm, I'm always a little bit twitchy at that term you know that we're we're teaching them these subjects because it's going to make them more civilized it just reeks a little bit of colonialism I I don't know There's so many things you could, you know, so many ways we could we could come across this one. Yeah, I mean, definitely this this whole question about, you know, civilising the kids is incredibly dangerous, not least because as I bang on about with painful regularity, the music teacher community is not enormously diverse and by that I don't just mean the fact that they they tend to be quite middle class and white I mean, I'm talking about musically diverse you know they tend to be mainly classically trained as they say you know and and those values the literature does say that those values are quite well ingrained and no matter how much we tend to think we're trying to move beyond them it's it's hard to do so yeah the civilizing one is tricky i mean actually on a really basic basic level that's a dangerous justification to base your your you know the existence of music on because quite frankly there are a lot of other subject areas and a lot of other art forms who would lay claim to creating you know well-rounded civilized human beings who get a heck of a lot more people through the door and have an awful lot less very expensive kit in their classrooms than the music department so i think it's it's just dangerous on that level and actually this idea about you know making them well-rounded emotionally intelligent human beings I don't think you have to go far into the world of music to find a lot of musicians who are really quite messed up. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's quite clever what this author has done here by almost like bringing all of the skeletons out of the closet and just laying them all in a line for people to chew over. And I, I think again we're bringing it back into land with things that you could do (laughs) you could maybe sort of bring out some of those skeletons and expose them to some very uh low risk (laughs) 
<laughs> critique from from trusted colleagues. You can. And I mean, this is the kind of thing that he does. He he goes off on a very contrarian line in a way. He says, watch out. It's, you know, if you're going to say music is good for you and that's why we should teach it. Well, first of all, I mean, he, he's got several subheadings here. He says music is tribal, exclusive and can enshrine prejudice. Mm. He talks about people singing sectarian songs on the football terraces. He talks about all, you know, the, the fact that people tend to have their musical identity your kids that like their heavy metal you you know when I started teaching it was all about the emo kids with the fringes halfway down to their nose all that kind of Mm. thing he says music is dangerous he talks about some of the the ideas that are are in the operas of Wagner you know which nobody could deny are great uh, achievements of western classical music but some of the characters in there are absolutely horrendous anti-Semitic tropes. It's very, very difficult. I mean, I once tied a sick form class up in knots by asking if we should censor Wagner. Um, we got ourselves <laughs> into a right tangle over whether, mm. whether we should censor Wagner. Music is manipulative of behaviour. It's used to make you buy things. It's used in, in advertising. Music is gendered. Music is terribly gendered, quite apart from the significant lack of female composers who've made it into the consciousness over the last few hundred years he also points out that the woman musician is more often than not uh, the singer and that there are all sorts of um, kind of ideas buried in the role of of the woman as the singer you know it says for centuries a singing woman has been associated with a sexual temptress and also the idealized mother singing to her child you know and there's all kinds of <laughs> fun and games buried in there it strikes me that <laughs> with the right year group and thinking very carefully about the the design of this these would make great sort of titles for schemes of work like music is dangerous yeah i mean absolutely he goes on music enshrines ideology music is propaganda he's pointing out that both the nazi regime and the soviet regimes had a lot of strong opinions about music they criticized art for its own sake it was expected to serve the regime the spirit of the people you know the aims of Hitler, Stalin, whoever it may be. And it reflects social structures. As I was sort of hinting at at the beginning there, there are kind of values inherent there. There are social structures being replicated in in the way that, that music is being presented in the classroom and that that's dangerous and so yeah you're right that that if we are to say music is good for you we need to think very very carefully about that argument yeah and if we're kind of not saying it explicitly but it's implicit within our curriculum design so you know we we can we can almost bake these in sometimes i'm thinking about the what matters statements and maybe being dreadfully um (laughs) 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 i'm speaking out of turn here but you know, the what matter statements, which are our kind of three big headline statements that sort of form the, the, the broad framework for the expressive arts curriculum in Wales. They're quite positively couched, as you would expect. I suppose you wouldn't want them to be couched in a negative <laughs> way. But, yeah. I, you know, it's what you then do in order to create some really critical thinking opportunities for learners then, I think is is really important. It's only by examining subject from these somewhat uncomfortable perspectives and truths that you could expose some of these opportunities like my mind is going 10 to the dozen here about 
a scheme of work on music and drama are bad for you. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And actually, one of the criticisms that I've levelled in conversation with you about the What Matters statements is that I'm always deeply suspicious of any statement where no sort of reasonable person could argue the opposite. The words motherhood mm. and apple pie are used to apply to statements like that. And I, I do sometimes wonder whether the danger with the What Matters statements is that no reasonable person can argue against them. Music is good for you. Mm. It's a glib statement that people make and actually people think can't be argued against but but Philpot in this chapter um, advances some very interesting and, and thought-provoking arguments on the other side. Well, I'm just looking at this. I'm going back to the what, just to give an example, in the What Matters statements, there's a, you know, seemingly benign and, and very sort of um, utopian sort of ideal <laughs> coming through here about the expressive arts can provide opportunities for learners to explore their own cultural heritage and that of other people, places and times, and through this discover how the expressive arts can be used to shape and express personal social and cultural identities if they don't learn how that has been done to the detriment or to the oppression of or the sidelining of or marginalization of other groups people's perspectives and has been used to put forward very very dangerous orthodoxies and propaganda statements then maybe we're doing them a disservice so we've got to think if we if we've been given the tool of subsidiarity the gift of subsidiarity we really need to think critically about how our localized curricula create those opportunities for learners to really get their teeth into um, the darker elements of our subject yeah, and there's a number of people calling upon us to be critical here. I mean, there is a there is a section in this chapter called A Critical Pedagogy for Music Education. That Elizabeth Bate article, The Justification for Music in the Curriculum, concludes that a, a critical pedagogy is a potential solution to that. Obviously, we've had Dr. Kev on, and Dr. Kev's about the critical in all things and the radical. You know, this is something that I don't really feel that we can duck if we're to do this properly. He also, this, here's another glib statement that he chews over. This is another one that people will often say, music is a language. Mm. That's an interesting one. You know, you will hear people say music is a language. And actually, Philpot devotes a page and a half to pulling apart that argument. And actually, he his conclusion, spoiler alert, his conclusion is that one way in which we can potentially justify music not in a soft way, but as a hard academic subject that deserves its own place on the curriculum rather than this sort of slightly wishy-washy, well, it's good for you, is if we can successfully argue for its existence as a language. But first of all, he goes to the trouble of painting the argument on the other side, that it's not a language. The idea that Music, I mean, he, he says, how does he put it now? Music fails the test of being a language, the argument goes, as it's impossible to find any causal link between sounds and meaning in the same way as there is between words and meaning. Uh, the logical view of language is synonymous with an objective, mind-independent view of knowledge. So if music cannot show that its meanings are somehow objective and testable through logic and observation, it can't be taken seriously as a language in which knowledge can be held. So, so there is an argument that music's not a language because you can't say an objective thing using music I'm thinking back to Kat Kirkland now and all the problems that she exposed with language and it also kind of runs that maybe 
you know, who's teaching the language and what freedoms are we denying through use of language? So it's, you know, I think that's a really interesting way of considering music. And I think you could probably consider drama in the same way because we do a lot of work on semiotics in drama. So the kind of sign systems of the stage and of kind of theatrical representation, how they all work together to create meaning. And, you know, one argument in light of what you've just uncovered there is that pupils need to understand how to control the aesthetic how to control the semiotics and to decode them and deconstruct them and realize when they're being controlled by them as well so I suppose by teaching them that language you're also allowing them to have the kind of power to use it there's that cultural capital coming in again there but I think what that also exposes which is something that is a problem in drama education is this whole idea of the subjectivity of the art form and this is where it becomes incredibly difficult to assess because my perspective on a piece of music I'm guessing Tom will be very very different to someone else's and in some ways like if we get into the technicalities of it there is a right or wrong but when you come to the kind of the emotional and the kind of subjective how what did I feel from this what story did it evoke what did I get from it then I would imagine we probably get into territory where you can't really quantify that well it's very interesting because in the very next section Philpot does signpost us towards semiotics and literary theory and this is why it's so important when you're making your cuppa in the staff room to try and sit down with your friendly neighborhood drama specialist or language specialist or literature specialist because he goes on to say you know that actually this idea of language written language or spoken language is being objectively transmitting facts is pretty kind of ropey when you try and examine it he says you examine semiotics literary theory and you find very quickly that the relationship between the word or sound the signifier And the object of meaning, the signified, is open to a multitude of cultural, ideological influences and is an ever-shifting and unstable horizon where any signified is open to many interpretations of its meaning. And of course, it's all to do with your lived experience and the culture that you're in and your values and things like that. And so he says that music as a language, like any other type of language, that conception is characterised by complex webs of meaning. And he sort of proposes that examination of those complex webs of meaning you know shedding light on them in their sort of full political and ideological sense is the thing that we should be doing with our pupils yeah I agree with that and I think if you apply that logic you cannot view your pupils as vessels or barbarians to be civilized to to to, you know to push the the point from earlier they are going to come at you know from the moment that they are born they are learning a language they are learning to engage with the world and have a perspective on the world so whether they're coming to Wagner when they're in year seven compared with when they're an adult in their 80s if we run that logic you know it's it's those webs of knowledge and experience that will help them to perceive of it anew afresh differently every time so yeah I quite like that idea of music as a language actually I like the idea of semiotics I think it's something that we share as a subject and I think it's got a lot of potential for thinking about how we teach and what we teach and thinking about the new curriculum for Wales and those 
powerful connections between subjects. Isn't it interesting that having come into a room with, with a very subject-specific piece of reading and, and some very subject-specific discussions, we've actually ended up finding a very interesting connection between our subjects. And maybe that's the way to do it rather than let's make a, a theme scheme of work and sort of see where the pieces land. I mean, Phil Pock uh, concludes by by saying that if we consider the notion of music as a language with all of that really complex stuff that it implies, the semiotics, the webs of meaning, then we find ourselves not having to settle for a soft, romanticised discourse about our subject, but something far more interesting. Through considering that music can be bad for you, we've actually ended up considering a, a far harder and a far more rigorous way of looking at our subject discipline and a more connected universal place for our subject discipline. Yeah, and to be fair to Martin Robinson, he's got an, a nice bit of this chapter about truth and about a study of drama is also kind of a study of truth and how that's represented through the art form so um, for example realism and the work of realism and naturalism such as um, Stanislavski is about a true to life representation and then practitioners such as Brecht were interested in social truths and how they use the art form to expose those and Artaud spiritual truths so I quite like this idea he, he also mentions about semiotics and about theory in drama covering page to stage and in reverse stage to page so deconstructing and constructing the semiotics of theatre and developing aesthetic and critical appreciation so it's like you give them the tools to make it so that they've got the tools to deconstruct it and understand it and know when they're being manipulated but it's a bit like when in, in a way it can be a bit sad because um i i know when i'm being manipulated in the theater sometimes but sometimes even knowing that i allow myself to go with it. it's that willing suspension of disbelief so yeah i i, I think i'm rambling now no, but I, I'm, <laughs> I'm getting into the indulgent phase of of subject here tom i'm splashing around in the pools of uh, well. of subject pedagogy and, and <laughs> curriculum. maybe the reward the reward for doing this is the indulgent phase that you can then do when you're onto your third or fourth cup of tea but i i suppose drawing it all the way back to the beginning maybe we've sold this idea of having these interesting conversations within your department or within multiple departments but how can we go about doing this? I mean, you and I are lucky. We've got books on our shelves. We've got chapters in our minds. Maybe we need to map out this process of, of what you can do. Yes, I think so. And I think what you need to remember already is that you, you, the likelihood is if you're a drama teacher, if you're a music teacher, if you're a teacher of any of these subject disciplines, you probably already have some form of curriculum artefact documents medium short-term long-term schemes of work so I think maybe start with what you've got but you maybe need a framework of questions that will help you to interrogate those now the curriculum for Wales design principles and guidance tell you rightly so that you need to start out with your why with your vision for the curriculum but sometimes asking why what you already had 
was there can help you to find a new version of that vision and your why and I just thought at this stage it might be worth kind of coming back to some of the questions that I uncovered in the Smith reflective model that might be a useful starting point to apply when you're thinking about um, interrogating your curriculum so things like what does my curriculum say about my assumptions values and beliefs about teaching or about my subject where did these ideas come from what social practices are expressed in these ideas or social values maybe you could say and what is it that causes me to maintain my theories or schemes of work we we were talking a bit about folk uh, <laughs> yeah we were folk folk schemes of work folk that, pedagogies, folk pedagogies. Yeah, that's that's it. That's those it. things that are on everybody's scheme of work and nobody really knows why it's really strange isn't it i was saying earlier on we were having a having a cuppa earlier on and i was saying that the ultimate folk pedagogy in the music department is blues it's it, <laughs> nobody knows why it's there but it's always there <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think in more recent times in drama, you know, there's a real fad for Frantic Assembly's work. I mean, Frantic Assembly is a physical theatre company who are fantastic, don't get me wrong. But um, I think perhaps because they are so generous in exposing their rehearsal room techniques that I think every school at one point that I was going around observing was doing um, a Frantic Assembly scheme of work, which is great. But then how do you continue to be dynamic and respond to the learning? that you have in front of you to the context you're in I mean a brief point to make just anecdotally is that when I look back to what I taught um, when I had choice I was teaching in Western Supermare and I was teaching a scheme of work on Abba Van when really if I were to speak to my former self now I would say come on Em have a little think about you know what's going on what's relevant and geographically relevant and historically relevant to those pupils in that context you know what you you sticking with what you know there let's get out of your comfort zone a little bit so yeah maybe some questions to create some healthy conflict around what you've already got another good starting point you may have noticed that in the expressive arts um, area of learning and experience it does give some sort of distinction about the sort of elements of drama the elements of music of art and design that you might decide to teach and include on a curriculum and a disciplinary level and it might be worth as a department having a look at those and asking do you agree with them is there anything missing would you add take away what do they say about your subject and would you decide to use them or discard them so a lot of starting points definitely incorporate if you can some of the excellent reading that's out there literature that's out there about drama and music and education or from a different disciplinary perspective they are out there and use them as a starting point to have some really good departmental conversations and cross settings if you can as well you know clustering with other schools clustering within subject associations you know that can really help to sort of diversify the perspectives that you're engaging with from a subject perspective and one of the other things that crossed my mind while you were saying that is that uh, possibly student teachers could be a really good resource in terms of this because particularly those that come out from our place but I wouldn't want to 
claim any unique amazingness about the students that come from our place if you're listening from further afield they are there to ask novice questions why are you doing that they're getting what we hope is the luxury of time and space in university to discuss these things they're hearing about what's going on in other departments because one of the features i remember this of being a a music teacher particularly in a or any teacher in a subject that has a small number of teachers is you get very very isolated in a bubble and so use your student teacher as a resource for starting some of these questions off um use also your local university initial teacher education people as a resource you know if you wouldn't know where to start finding some reading email the equivalents of me and emma and i'm sure they'll be providing something useful to you why not set up some sort of discussion or something like that because it is very hard to get these things started in isolation in a bubble which with the best will in the world it can be very easy to get into in schools i must say one of the things i discovered when i left and started doing this job was that there were things going on down the road which i wish i'd known about when i was in the classroom i totally agree i I think you've got there a wealth of something to try (laughs) of things to try yeah get going Um, and just to reiterate my chapter was just drama by martin robinson in what should schools teach discipline subjects in the pursuit of truth second edition edited by segal cuthbert and standish and mine was the justification for music in the curriculum music can be bad for you by chris philpot which is chapter four of debates in music teaching edited by chris philpot and gary spruce and published by routledge and to be honest the contents list is an absolute who's who of people who write really interesting things about music so it's worth getting hold of a copy yeah absolutely and like with mine there are other subject disciplines in this book so definitely well worth getting a copy we'll as ever put the uh, the references in, in our episode notes well tom wow <laughs> i didn't even know back. how long that was it felt like it was a long one <laughs> <laughs> well it's unedited form it's just breaking 54 minutes <laughs> gosh see that's what happened and you take the lid off uh, a subject specialist (laughs) yeah definitely but it's worth doing so uh, set aside a bit of time definitely and we'll be back in your ears in two weeks You've been listening to Emma and Tom Talk Teaching, a podcast about all things education presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. There were no special guests this episode, but we hope you enjoyed it anyway. Podcast artwork is by Beth Blanford and the music is by Cameron Stewart. We're on Twitter at Talk Teaching Pod, so come and say hello. We'll be back in a fortnight with something else interesting. Until then, take care and enjoy teaching.